This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luc Olivier Dumeble. And I'm Yannick Magnet. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? PlayStation Spring of Missteps. Ooh. But before we start on this topic, you have some follow-up. Yep. So first, we're going to remind you that uh, once again, uh, we'll be taking a break throughout the month of August. Uh, so the last episode that we're going to release before our summer break is going to be August 1st, and then we'll return sometime in September. So stay tuned to the podcast and to our Twitter account for news of our return. Uh, next up is some follow-up for episode 161. This was the episode I did about Swift and Swift UI, Burden of Explicitness. First of all, I want to thank our listeners for uh, some great comments from both non-developers and developers from other platforms. Uh, I heard that a lot of people finally understood uh, people's criticism of Swift because of this episode. So I'm glad that it worked out uh, because sometimes you're not privy to all of the discourse if you're uh, from a different developer environment. Uh, I also got a tweet from front of the show, David Ashby, that I think you could have enjoyed quite a bit. Uh, I did? Yeah. So here's the tweet. Funny to hear you say, I might just go become a Go developer, because if there's a language that provides even less dynamism than Swift, it's Go. And he's totally right. Uh, so good job for calling me out on this. Uh, I, <laughs> I didn't actually uh, go into detail on this on the show. Uh, I ended up cutting it from my notes, which uh, I probably shouldn't have. Basically, the reason I'm so drawn to Go is that Go actually just like hits a lot more for me on the level of the simplicity. It's really like a spiritual successor to C in that respect. And it's much closer to the simplicity that I want out of my development tools than Swift is. And I'm ultimately willing to make the uh, dynamism trade-off if development is simply more fun and more comfortable for me, especially for personal projects where there are no stakes and basically... All that matters is my personal motivation to work on it. Uh, so that's sort of like why I really enjoy Go when I have uh, the opportunity to develop in it. Uh, the problem for back users and iOS developers is there are no real good bindings for any native UI frameworks for Go. So you're sort of limited to the command line or to X windows, which is less than ideal. Um so I've mostly been sticking to doing command line stuff with Go, uh, and it, it works great for that, but uh, for GUI programming right now, I don't really have a good option. Uh, next up, WWDC was last week, um, but uh, we're not going to be going too much in depth on that because we're going to have next episode where we uh, talk about uh, WWDC sessions we've watched. Um, but I do have a couple points that are directly addressing things that I mentioned on the episode. So I do want to uh, cover those briefly. Uh, first thing, multi-column tables that I was bitching about, they are now available in Swift UI, And I cheered really fucking loud in my kitchen for like three seconds. And then they said it's only on the Mac. And then I went back to being real fucking pissed. Uh, so by everything we've been able to see, it just looks like a Swift UI layer on top of an stable view instead of a whole new re-implementation of the control. And that's why it would only be on the Mac. Uh, so I guess if you're doing tables and you're only developing for the Mac, it's great. If you're developing for iOS, Apple still seems to think that you don't want multi-column tables on iOS. Don't know and understand why, but they simply seem to think that. Uh, but it's nice to see that that at least came to the Mac. And maybe, I mean, I've been saying this since the iPad came out, maybe in a couple of years they'll give us multi-column tables on the iPad. Uh, next on the, uh, on the point of documentation, 
they announced a new documentation format called Docc. Uh, I have not actually looked into it enough to know if this improves uh, things with uh, uh, result builders and uh, Swift UI documentation in particular. Are you aware if it fixes any of that? Not really, but I did watch the I think one or two and. In- no, I think two or three uh, of the Doxy sessions, and they are an improvement on top of the current Docs, the com- the Doc style comments you can leave in the in your code base, uh, because they more or less use the same syntax. Like I was, like when they were explaining the syntax, like I was like, that's literally what you need to do. So I do hope that so Doxy means for documentation compiler. I do hope that what it means is you still, if you've been good at doing comments in your code base, <coughs> not Apple. Uh, I hope that with this new compiler, it will f- surface it in Xcode. And also they've been uh, pretty clear to say that you can also export them into a package. So uh, it seems that it is an improvement into the tools inside Xcode and how to share documentation and less about how you write inline documentation in your code base, which that I'm happy because I think I really enjoy the format that Apple has been using, whether in Objective-C or in Swift for years. Yeah, it's really more of an expansion of what they had uh, in terms of functionality, more so than a completely replacing the thing they had before although it's a completely new bit of code but i mean like the the syntax is fundamentally the same and all that it looks really cool i just uh, i've been really busy with wdc plus e3 two weeks back to back like forget it i haven't watched any sessions yeah uh so i will try to look more into it and maybe uh come back with some more details on a future episode and the last thing is just like a general uh realization is that uh, if you've been listening closely to Apple developers talking about many of the apps that have been updated or rewritten uh, throughout this new version cycle of uh, iOS 15 and uh, macOS 12, uh, you know that SwiftUI is currently being heavily used across all of Apple platforms for these new and redesigned apps. And that's great because it means that Apple is going to hit all the same problems we we are hitting as uh, developers and they are more likely to actually fix things than if they don't, uh, which was one of my worries about Swift UI. Uh, so it's really nice to see quick adoption within Apple. And I am fingers crossed that uh, this will greatly speed up the improvement of Swift UI in a way that maybe other frameworks in the past haven't seen as quite as much love as it should. Uh, so that will be really nice. To kind of come back a bit to the list view, I think also, not I think, also on the iOS side of SwiftUI, there has been a lot of more announcement that is bringing back either controls or functionality that were available in a UI kit. And recall we had a small attention in the Swift episode uh, a month ago. And Literally in iOS 15 and even with the new SDK, they are slowly but surely bringing that, that bringing those elements back, and that was pretty happy to see. Yep. Uh, next up, some follow up for episode 150. All my friends have HomePods about Stadia. Uh, oh my goodness, more <laughs> <our> titles. <laughs> so uh, they. Uh, Google announced this week that uh, Google Stadia is coming to Chromecast, Google TV, and Android TV on June 23rd. So it's been almost a year since these project products have launched without support for Stadia, and now they're finally getting it. Now, the worrisome thing is that Best Buy in the U.S. today started selling Stadia controller kits for 50% off, 
players uh, try and clear him out. So there has been high speculation that Stadia is just dead, uh, which would be hilarious uh, because I don't know if it will matter that Google Stadia will be on Chromecast and Android TV because maybe it'll be dead by then. Uh, but that's real interesting. And sticking on the topic of cloud gaming, uh, some follow-up for episode 129, Climate of Negativity. Uh, there have been some exciting announcements about xCloud this week. Once again, kind of in line with uh, the whole E3 thing. Uh, so there's an article on The Verge that says that Microsoft announces Xbox TV app for uh, smart TVs and smart TV boxes and their own xCloud streaming stick. So they really want everyone to be able to get onto Game Pass by just buying an Xbox controller and playing on literally whatever. Um, now, the obvious thing to bring up here is that it's probably not going to be available on tvOS because... The same reasons as it's not going to be available on iOS. And since tvOS does not have a browser, you're not going to be able to circumvent it. Uh, what's actually qu quite funny is if you have an Xbox, uh, Microsoft Edge is an app on the Xbox, and you can run Stadia in Microsoft Edge, uh, which is hmm. kind of a weird thing. Again, it won't matter in two weeks when Stadia doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> but right. uh, Microsoft does have a, a client like PS Now on their consoles to get access to uh, Game Pass games or uh, games. Uh, well yes yes you can ah okay okay and like uh this week they've also updated all their data centers to have series x now so if you have an xbox mm. one and you have game pass you can use xcloud to stream series x games that you don't have access to right now they're pretty much all cross-gen so you have no real reason unless you want to try to play the higher graphics version anyway on right. in the cloud and stream it over um but like all of this excitement around uh, the Xbox TV app and the xCloud stick is that all of this is really great for PlayStation fans because now that means it costs way less to get into Halo Infinite, which is going to have free-to-play multiplayer, uh, or Forza Horizon 5, which was also announced this week, which looks fucking phenomenal. Uh, so buying like a $30 streaming stick and an Xbox controller is a pretty good proposition to have access to uh, Game Pass. And just to give you a high-level overview of how uh, invested Microsoft is in getting things on Game Pass, the Xbox press conference uh, last week featured 30 games, and 27 of them are going to be available on launch at game, on Game Pass. Wow. Which means you basically get the entire year of Xbox games, minus three, uh, if you're a Game Pass subscriber, which means the value on Game Pass is currently completely insane. It is out of control. Um, so I don't want to turn this into a whole E3 thing, but uh, lots of exciting <laughs> stuff going on uh, on Xbox. Uh, so we've been going backwards in time uh, through the episodes. Now let's loop back to the present uh, with Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart, which came out uh, in the last two weeks. And uh, this is... Uh, follow-up to last episode's follow-up about uh, Sony reworking a bunch of its projects into cross-gen games mm. because Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart is one of the very few titles right now uh, that is only on PS5. And a lot of reviewers have said this is the first game on PlayStation, well, on all next-gen, really, that feels truly next-gen uh, because it directly takes advantage of the SSD to render environments at a scale we've never seen in video games before in real time and switch between completely different assets like the the gimmick of the game is dimensional rifts where you can basically like flip between parallel universes with completely different assets uh 
But usually when you see that, it is in very uh, geometrically constrained locations. Like there's a very good level in the Titanfall 2 campaign that does this, but it's all indoors and in very relatively enclosed spaces. This does this with like Disneyland type geometry uh, that just flips in like a second, not even with no loading time. It's absolutely fucking wow. insane. Uh, and like people who said like I was crying when I saw this, I mean like I'm maybe a little bit over the, the edge, but it's really like the first time you really like have that sense of, oh, this is a huge generational shift for video games. Um, so it's really exciting to hear all that. However, again, knowing what we know about PlayStation embracing cross-gen now because they can't sell any PS5s, uh, don't expect more games like this for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also funny, like, I know we discussed in previous episode about, like, SSD performance and all that fun stuff. It's like, kind of, welcome to the 2010s video game console makers with SSD technology. Yeah. So. It's kind of fun that it's finally here. But I, I think the main difference is like I, I have an SSD in my PS5, uh, my PS4, and games run like shit anyway. Uh, it's right. just games that were never designed for them. Whereas now they have all of this in-engine support and in-OS support for really fast SSD loading and structuring your game so that it loads quickly. That yeah. is absolutely insane, and I love it. Yeah, the, the main benefit, and I think we were discussing that offline a couple of months back, is the main uh, main benefit of getting an SSD on your PS4 right now is just somewhat faster load time. And I think the best way to see it is when I was playing online with my brother, and I was like, "Hey, I'm waiting for you in the game or in the waiting room," and he's like, "What? You're in the waiting room already?" He's like, "Uh, yes." Yeah. Uh, so I'm, and I wouldn't be surprised. It's a mix of both faster internet and ssd or if you're playing like really hard like games like dark souls or neo or whatever like you notice it because you die a lot and you have to reload a lot so (laughs) (laughs) so that ties in directly with this week's topic which is sony had a really rough spring in terms of public perception with gamers and gamers tend to get riled up about like really stupid shit but i think this time it was mostly justified and given how much time we've given to xbox missteps previously on the show i think it's only fair that we cover sony's as well i mean i i still that's totally fair yeah i i still consider myself a playstation fan overall but uh, i mean like it's because i'm a playstation fan that i sort of want to shit on them because they did bad stuff and i'm disappointed in them and i want to say why i'm disappointed in them uh it's kind of also just really funny that like this kept happening like every week from like um march to may they kept doing fucked up shit every week or so uh so it was was rare that you see a company sort of step into the bear trap only to step into another bear trap on the way out uh and we're going to start with the very first of these events which is the announcement of the closure of the ps3 psp and Mm. playstation vita storefronts so on March 22nd, a website that I had never heard of before called thegamer.com, which sounds like the biggest <laughs> SEO farm bullshit website in the world. Uh, I actually didn't believe it when it first was posted because I was like, this website looks like someone spent five minutes to put it together from a WordPress template and I have never heard of it before. But apparently it was true. Uh, they leaked Sony internal plans to shut down the PS3, PSP, and PS Vita digital storefronts over the summer. So the plans that were uh, leaked was that PlayStation 3 and PlayStation Portable would go down on July 2nd, and the PlayStation Vita store would go down on August 27th. 
And this was a big deal. Um, PS3 and Xbox 360 was the first major console generation to feature digital game storefronts. And more importantly, it had games that were digital only. Uh, And more so on PlayStation 3 than Xbox, because uh, Xbox, everyone forgets this, but Xbox 360 supported memory cards. Uh, You could put a memory card in the controller, and I don't know anyone who ever did this, but it was a thing you could do. Right. Was it in the back of the controller where yeah. you could also put the... Uh, it was next to the battery pack too, right? Uh, Yeah, I think it was like a, an expansion port where you could put like a headset or the memory right. card. i never seen those in a while. Yeah, me neither. But if you had uh, the Xbox Arcade SKU, which was like the, the cheap Xbox 360 you could buy for like $100 less, uh, you were using memory cards or buying uh, an external well not an external but uh, a separate hard drive basically uh and again like i don't know anyone who ever had these uh but in general microsoft is better about making their digital only games come out physically uh there have been a couple like xbox live arcade compilations that basically took these games that were online only and publish them on a disc somewhere which is great because well actually the the xbox 360 store is up so it doesn't really matter but uh ps3 was not so good about this there are a lot of games that have uh either no digital uh no physical release at all or had very limited physical releases in like asia and not even the main regions just like if you're in korea you can buy an english version of this game some for some reason Hmm. uh So that was kind of a problem. And unlike what we say a lot on the show, uh, mobile platforms or PCs where the software foundation is constantly moving, so sometimes there is an expectation that games will break over time, PS3 is a fixed platform. The platform isn't going to change in two weeks, and the games are going to stop working. So there's no real reason that these games need to stop being available. Uh, the underlying platform is still fully functional, and as far as anyone can tell in the industry, there isn't really a contractual reason why PlayStation needs to put the store down. It just makes everyone feel bad that these games are going away. Um, and like the flip side of this, and something that I have not seen enough people talk about, is like we're all developers. I think we can sympathize with the idea that discontinuing old network services you don't want to maintain anymore. Uh, or don't want to have to keep backward compatible, uh, keep everything else backward compatible with indefinitely. Like we can sympathize with that because it's a pain in the ass. Like I have to, ma- I have to maintain legacy web services, and it's a real pain in the ass. And I, <laughs> I can't wait. I like I've been I've working on for months to try to discontinue one of them, and it's not going great right now. Um, and you know what? I, I'll also say I, I feel that, and I also have been on the other side of this of the table, which I'm the iOS or the mobile developer bitching about somebody that is as broken or even is willing to deprecate an API. It's like, yeah, I still have binaries in the wild that yeah. they, that they don't disappear just by cl- flicking uh, of the flipping of a switch. You know, like we still need to figure a deprecation plan that makes sense. So this problem is. Hard, not because it's technically hard, because it's a lot of dealing with humans and dealing with communication, and that's a hard problem. Yeah, and I think like mobile application developers have had to face this problem a lot more than 
game console makers have to because they've mm. released two systems since this started being a thing whereas lots of mobile app developers have written things for example for the facebook api and then there's a facebook api change and then like every couple months you have to change your app because there are api changes like the cycles are much shorter in mobile development or in, even in desktop software development than they are in uh game consoles but like Everyone knows when they are making, or at least they should, when they're making the decisions to base things off of network services or make things that are only available or dependent on network services, that there is an inherent expiration date on those services. Uh, and we seem to have come to the expiration date for those services. Uh, and th this will be relevant later in the episode. Um, so on March 29th, Sony actually confirmed these plans on the PlayStation blog. I can't find the blog post anymore. It was removed for a reason that will become clear in a little bit. Um, there, there was a support page that I could find, but uh, I'll put a link to Kotaku in the show notes because it's probably the simplest thing. Uh, it, they clarified something that was really important, which is... Uh, you would still be able to go re-download games that you've already purchased, and you'll be able to get patches for games, uh, but simply the ability to make new purchases of games or downloadable content would be removed on the dates that I mentioned earlier. This came as a surprise to Vita game developers, because as you may be surprised to hear that there were still Vita games in development at this time. And the developers found out at the same time as everybody else, which is not a great look that they were working for no reason to make a Vita game that they could not ship. Uh, Vita physical game manufacturing ended a couple years ago. So you can't actually ship new Vita cards right now. And digital was the only game distribution method left. But now they were stuck with these half-complete games that they had no way to distribute because there was an expiration date on the Vita store of August 27th. I know, I know that we discussed in great length that like the Vita still had more success in Japan and that they would still have a cult following and blah blah blah. But even today, as we record this episode, and I recall you reminded me this when we talked about that privately in May, I was still, and I'm still utterly flabbergasted that somebody in 2021 decided to build a new game targeted to the Vita, and I'm. I love the Vita, and I think this whole podcast existence <laughs> is you, Yannick and I talking about our love for the Vita, but I don't see the business sense of doing that. Like, like I'm not, again, we'll talk about our opinions about that in just a sec, but it's kind of rolling a dice, and you picked the wrong number at this point, because I'm not surprised that Sony had made the decision. The, the thing that is really strange about the Vita, and I think this mostly applies to the Switch. Like, a lot of the things that are true about the Vita are also true about the Switch, except with a magnitude higher uh, success rate because mm -hmm. people are actually buying it. Uh, is that... And it's still sold. Yeah. It's that uh, Vita has a crazy attach rate. The people... The, not a lot of people bought the Vita, but the people who bought the Vita really fucking love the Vita and they want a lot of Vita games. And they will buy whatever garbage comes out on it. Like, it's not even a joke that I'm saying garbage right now. It's like they will buy literally any garbage that comes out on it. And a lot of developers just... I mean, like, if you have this audience of people who buy almost anything that comes out on it, you'd sort of be silly to ignore that audience... To some degree, it, d it depends on the effort. Of course, you have to do your calculus and all of that stuff. Right. right. Uh, I, I guess the thing people didn't factor in is like 
I understand shutting down the PSP store. Like, I don't think in 2021 someone's going to be making a PSP game or a PS3 game. Like, th- those days, it was pretty clearly, like, gone. PS Vita is 10 years old this year. But if the PSP store hadn't shut down after 10 years, then why would PS Vita be closing anytime soon? Like, that's sort of, like, the the thing where, like, I don't get... I, I wouldn't have expected Vita to go with it. PSP, PS3, yeah, sure. They've had their time in the sun and they're pirated to hell. You can install whatever you want on them and get the ROMs online if you want it to absolutely play a game. Like, that's not hard. Vita, you can make still a case that it's still floating around. But I, yeah, I, I personally would not make my game for the Vita as much as I love it today because, well, knowing what I know, I would not. But even if I didn't know that the store was closing... I wouldn't make a game for the Vita today. I would just focus that effort on Switch because the addressable market is so much higher. Right. And this is what Japan is doing. So, I mean, like, it can't be a bad thing, especially considering Vita was a huge hit in Japan. Uh, so there was a bunch of outrage on the internet. And, I mean, game collectors uh, were freaking out and everything. Uh, people made these giant Excel database, uh, Excel spreadsheets of all of the games that are uh, in specific genres or whatever that are only ported on PS3 and don't exist anywhere else. And go download these games all you can. And I guess Sony saw how much money was coming in from <laughs> from the people who were panic buying everything on the PS3 and PSP store, and they were like, "Oh, maybe we shouldn't shut down these stores." So on. April 19th, Sony mostly reversed their decision. So the only store that is going down this summer is the PSP store. It is going down on July 2nd. PSP is the oldest of all these systems anyway. Um, PS3 and Vita do not have an expiration date for the foreseeable future. Uh, Despite the Vita store still existing, developers still can't submit new games to the storefront. So these game developers are still screwed. Okay, so so they didn't revert that decision. No. You can just continue buying Vita games, but developers cannot make new games available. Okay, that's, in my opinion, fair trade-off. What I understand from this is Sony does not want to have to certify Vita games anymore. Right. So they are shutting down the program entirely, which makes sense. Um the one thing that is like in typical, we do this every fucking time Sony says something is, uh, <laughs> Sony is very bad at messaging things. And mm-hmm. the one thing that is not clear is the Vita shop has the PSP shop inside it. You can buy PSP games and a lot of the best Vita games are actually PSP games. <laughs> so it's not clear if after July 2nd, you can still buy PSP games out through the Vita shop. Oh, I see, I see. Nothing anywhere clarifies this still, so I don't know. <laughs> and isn't it the same that in theory through the PS3 shop you can buy PSP and PS Vita games to, like when you manually plug your yep. PSP or PS uh, Vita via USB, you can like just do the transfer. Yep. Again, not clear what's going on there either. Um, PSP, like, has been clear for a while that they've been phasing that one out because I think, I don't remember the exact details, but basically, like, there there are, like, three or four different ways you can access the PSP shop. Like, you can do it via the web. Well, you could do it via the web. You could do it via the PS3. You can do it via the PSP. You can do it via the Vita. And there, I think there was another way, like, through a weird app or something on Windows, you could do it, maybe. Uh, and I think, like, only two of those still worked. So it was already clear, like, that 
was going away soon. Like, so maybe that's just why they pulled that one because they were like, we've already deprecated half of the ways you can access the store. So no one really cares anymore. Um, and let's be honest, PSP is like the most hacked handheld ever released. <laughs> um, so it's not like you're going to have trouble getting those games on there if you want them. But yeah, uh, for everything else, it's just like, this messaging is super not clear right now. And I wish Sony would clarify something, but uh, I mean, July 2nd, we only have like th two and a half more weeks to wait and we'll find out, I guess. So um, look forward to that in a future episode. <laughs> so I want to get to the next point uh, in this uh, parade of bad PR for Sony, which is directly related to what we were just talking about. And that is... April 2nd, patches for old PS3 games stopped being available. So shortly after they announced uh, that they were closing the PS3 store, people started noticing that physical games they put into their PS3 were no longer downloading patches when you put them in. And it was a lot of games. It was like over 100 games. And... There was a common thread to all of these games, which is really weird and interesting. And again, it ties to the fact that network services, legacy network services are hard and it's easy to forget that certain things are tied to them, maybe. Um, all of the games that were impacted by this bug appear to be uh, titles developed before patch distribution was integrated into the PlayStation Store infrastructure. So on hmm. PS3 early on, uh, first of all, PlayStation Network sort of half launched on PS3 at the same time. Like it existed, but half the features didn't exist yet. Uh, so a lot of people forget that. And uh, PlayStation Store, for example, was sort of a separate sales channel for different SKUs than the physical release SKUs. And that meant that their patches were separate from the patches for the physical versions. And then eventually people realized we're releasing the same games digitally and physically, they should be on the same patch and we should not have two parallel paths for these different SKUs. So they merged them into the PlayStation Store patch distribution channel. And basically all of the games that were having their patches no longer load were games on the legacy channel before they were merged. And the investigation that people did sort of led people to believe that the legacy channel was just offline. Uh... <laughs> And that means that uh, if you had Gran Turismo 5, Metal Gear Solid 4, uh, you couldn't get patches for them. Uh, Gran Turismo 5 is particularly no notable because if, I mean, we both played Gran Turismo 5. There were a lot of patches for that game and they came out very frequently. And the release version of the game is basically incomplete uh, if you just install what's on the disc. Uh, you really want to be on the patched version of Grand Turismo 5. <laughs> and suddenly having this uh, legacy channel go away was terrible because now it meant you were stuck with the the disc version of Grand Turismo 5 and that version, unless you bought the re-release later, it sucks. Um, and you couldn't guarantee that most of your physical copies of uh, PS3 games were good either. So yeah, this bug showed up early April. And it has gradually resolved itself over the course of the month of April in North America. Europe, it's not clear what the hell is going on there. So Europe was recovering patches at a much, much slower pace than North America. 
But by the end of April, it was a dire situation. And then people just got tired of checking if the patches went back up and they stopped posting about them on the internet. So I'm not sure what's going on with the European PS3 patches. They might be caught up. I don't know. The last I the last post I've seen about this issue was April 30th. So yeah, that, that was not great. Uh, the main theory now uh, seems to be that because... Uh, they uncancelled uh no before the before they reverted the decision basically uh they were migrating this legacy channel to a different server so that they could like take the old server offline or something and this migration process took a couple days in north america and took apparently an entire month in europe uh <laughs> at least um so that that's the current theory sort of for what happened there uh, but this is not good because when you buy a physical copy of a game, uh, first of all, like this brought a lot of attention to the fact that the version on the disc is the version that is preserved if you have a physical copy, not the last version that you played with of it. And if you buy something like Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 5, which was literally a disc that told you to put it, put uh, go online to install the latest patch because it has like nothing on the disc uh you have a nice nothing preserved if you have a physical copy of that game uh so patches are important do you have any comments on this or i i do i am i know there's a lot of people that are worried that you know even if the store were supposed to go down that even at some point, Sony would have stopped allowing you to read on the old re-download your old purchases because that also will have a, like an ongoing cost. And then we go into the big the the big tangent on like game video game preservation and even digital things preservation because at some point, uh, let's not hope it soon, but at some point Sony will disappear. Who knows, right? Uh, or it will no longer be financially viable for them to do. Uh, to allow you to do that so they'll shut it down and then you won't be able to download and then we'll all end up on insert website here uh whether it's ebay or all of that stuff just trying to figure out like who has a console with a lot of games unloaded on them and blah 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 just to replay old games and that is that is worrisome like i would like to play games that i grew up with in 20 years just for the sake of fond memories the same way you can just buy an nes and a I still have a family members that have our family NES. I think it's my brother or my parents. I forgot, but like it's still working, so we can still play to it. We play the games with it, like nearly at this point, what forty years after my dad bought it. So I wish that I do hope that we'll figure out a way. And again, it might end up being like you mentioned for the PH, the PSP, excuse me, uh, that you have to resort to some kind of piracy to just make that happen. Yeah, and to be perfectly clear, like the PSP is the most hacked of these systems, but PSP, PS3, and Vita are completely broken open. You can just do whatever you want with them right now. So the like, as far as I know, all of the games have been dumped already, so you can go download them on illegal sources, and you can put them on your devices fairly easily. So I mean, I'm not worried about these systems, but it's still it still sucks to see these platforms go down because, for example, like. 
Uh, Tokyo Jungle is an example of a PS3 game that is really, really weird and uh, has a cult following. Uh, it's this weird game where you play animals in a post-apocalyptic Tokyo. Uh, and hmm. it's like a survival game, whereas you play like wild animals in post-apocalyptic Tokyo. And that game, it did get a very, very limited uh, physical release, again, in the Asia territory. But aside from that, it was only available digitally. And that game is a really weird thing. And some people call it like a really interesting piece of art. But if you can only get it for like $600 on eBay, because it's like the last physical copies that are left around, it's kind of weird for a game that is considered to be that important to only be available via either piracy or through this like super expensive used copy that someone bought randomly ages ago. Right. Um, And then there's the whole patch thing, which is just like, and even if you have the disc, maybe it's a bad version of that game. Uh, and I mean, that again is resolved with piracy and all of that stuff. But still, it, it's a lot of data to try to preserve. And yeah, it's kind of messy. Uh, we do have another point that uh, revolves around Sony disappearing and network services. Uh, and that is the PS4 CMOS bomb. So like, there is an arc to these three things that we're talking about right now. So CMOS bomb on PS4, what does that mean? If your PS4 CMOS battery dies and you replace it, your PS4 will not boot any games, physical or digital, unless it can talk to PlayStation servers. If it can't do this, you can't play any games on the PS4 anymore, and your PS4 effectively is a piece of hardware that doesn't do anything anymore. (laughs) And this is a big deal, obviously, because it fundamentally betrays consumers' expectations of what a physical copy of a game means. Uh, like I think at least in the game collector world and the tech savvy people world, a lot of people understand that when you buy a digital copy of a game, you're not really buying a real copy of that game. You're buying a license that lives on a server software and it has an implicit expiration date when those servers go away. Uh, and some people are willing to make the trade-off of the convenience of like, yeah, I want to play this game tonight. I'm going to press this button. It's going to download. And in 15 minutes, I'm going to start playing Death Stranding or whatever. Uh, A lot of people have like this baggage, like you mentioned of the old NES carts, which is like physical copy is a physical artifact of that game. And in theory, nothing outside of the console and the disc should be able to impact whether or not you're able to play that thing because the data is on the disc and the console is there and therefore just do the thing and play the game. Uh, Of course, like... As I mentioned 60 billion times already, if there's a game with patches, the disc version isn't going to be up to date, but at least you have what's on the disc. And again, like in the theoretical world where the PS servers go away, you're not going to be downloading patches either. So you're going to be stuck with an incomplete version of the game anyway. So you sort of have to deal. Uh, This fucking sucks. Uh, As someone who has a a decent amount of disc games, uh, if someday uh, PlayStation goes away, uh, not being able to play those games anymore that are sitting on my shelf would suck a lot. And it's going to suck even more once you, re- you understand the reason why they have this system in place. Are you ready to have your mind blown? Yes. Okay. The requirement for the CMOS battery server check is how Sony apparently prevents people from faking trophies. What? I, I I don't understand how, 
but like there's some sort of magic with regards to how the PlayStation gets its time from the PlayStation servers that guarantees the authenticity of PlayStation Network trophies. Really? Apparently. Now I'm wait a sec. The PS3 didn't have this problem and also had trophies. And people cheated trophies. Uh, <laughs> fair. Okay. I okay. Now this is where I have to stress that in a world without PlayStation servers, trophies have no value because PlayStation Network is no longer available. So nobody gives a shit about your trophies. Right. But I'm I'm about to go a bit uh, like into crazy mode here, but isn't there already techniques from PCs to replace their CMOS battery without cutting the power and replacing the battery? Uh I I know it like works for uh Game Boy cartridges, so I assume maybe you can do this a similar thing on PC or PS4. Right. I, I'm not Again, skilled enough in that domain to know, but right, it's not making it uh, easier to maintain an old PS4 consoles in 2040. But at least if people figure out the way, or at least if Sony patches it, but I guess they seem to be pretty uh, anal about not faking trophies. Well, okay, so there was another bit of news that came out Ooh. around this. Uh, unfortunately, it is not. Good news. It's just more sad news. Uh oh. <laughs> so, uh, w- so the, the interesting thing I, I want to go into the context about why we found out about the CMOS bomb. The, the CMOS bomb thing came out after they announced the thing about the stores, uh, because people were saying like these systems are cracked already so there's nothing to worry about there like those games are already preserved like yes it sucks that you can't buy a legal copy but like in the large s- sense of things like nothing is lost buy this it sucks but nothing is lost ps4 on the other hand there's nothing we can do about this right now uh unless sony patches it there's nothing we can do about this so we should be focusing on this issue instead of the story issue because this is the bigger issue uh down the line and uh when people found out that it was tied to the trophy thing game developers came out and started talking about the playstation 2 classics program which is the thing we've talked about on the show uh, I mean, previously I've said that I'm disappointed the PlayStation 2 Classics program on PS4 has like 30 games and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And I wish that there had been more games. Well, we found out why there were not more games for this. Because Sony requires people who make PS2 Classics games to put trophies in their PS2 games. And lots of studios, especially the Japanese ones, because Japanese developers are the worst of this, don't have the source code. <laughs> For their games anymore. So they would have to manually patch it and reverse engineer it. And they don't want to hire someone to reverse engineer MIPS code just to insert fucking trophies. Uh, (laughs) So, like, developers have actively said, like, we were planning to release, like, 15 PSU games. And then when we found out we had to put trophies in them, we said, no thanks, and we'll just not release them. And this obsession about trophies, like, I barely think about trophies, honestly. I'm really not that kind of gamer. And I don't think anyone cares if you cheat trophies, honestly. Like, who the fuck cares? It's just a checkbox. I I honestly don't care. There's no money value to that. There's like, I don't... Why are we so obsessed with ruining the PS4's chance at preserving those games long-term for fucking trophies. 
See, I, I first I assumed without mentioning it, I assumed it was like you know you'll tell me it's a DRM thing and I'll be like oh fuck DRM. But no, fact <laughs> that it's as stupid as trophy. But then trophies just become DRMs. Pretty much, it's oh stupid. It's completely fucking stupid. So um yeah now um. One weird thing, this came up on the Digital Foundry podcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, PS3 got a system update recently. Uh, like, in the last month, it got a software update, which was the first one in, hmm. I think, like, three to four years, uh, which was really strange. Uh, so, S- Sony has not, like, lost the source code to their own firmwares. They can still release patches. So, people are really hoping that someday this CMOS thing gets patched out of the ps4 operating system at least like if sony is on the verge of shutting down their servers or something they can do something to loosen things up and i think in general sony is pretty good at um admitting defeat when their systems have been hacked and making sure that the final versions of their os's don't randomly just shut down hacks for the hell of it uh i've been really happy with psp in that respect where i think like the last year or so the PSP was actively being maintained, the thing was hacked wide open and Sony basically just like stopped giving a shit and they were just like, we don't even want to patch this anymore. It's not worth it. You'll just find another hole. Uh, and they kept doing that. And I think PS3 is sort of in the same ballpark. Uh, so I think once Sony stops caring about like the re- incoming revenue from games on their older platforms, I think they're largely just open to the possibility of we'll just release a patch that fixes this permanently and it'll be a done issue. Um, But with the PS5 uh, cross-gen stuff sort of stretching out the life of the PS4, we don't know when that's going to be. But at least that means probably PS4 servers aren't going to go down anytime soon. Um, But I don't know. We'll see. Did people figure out what was the PS3 update about? Uh, no, I did not get any uh, follow-up news about that. I think it might be just, like, updating routes to point to new servers or stuff. Mm. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised, like, or, like, public key certs because expiring certs and stuff like that. Because back in the day, PlayStation Network was just a subservice of Sony Curiosity, which was spelled with a Q, and... That was how you uh, approved your devices, and I think that curiosity hasn't existed in like five years, uh, so they probably had to patch that stuff out of the firmware. Um, right. So that sort of closes the uh, network services arc of this episode. Now we can go into the last piece of this episode, which is about uh, Sony's internal game development studios and their approach mm. to game development and their game portfolio. So on April 9th, Jason Schreier at Bloomberg leaked Sony's approach to their next-gen franchise portfolio in an article called Sony's Obsession with Blockbusters is Stirring Unrest Within PlayStation Empire. And to summarize things very briefly, their strategy comes down to concentrating on a few narrative-driven blockbuster franchises that can be milked as cross-media projects every couple of years. Uh, so a couple examples of these that you may have heard of. Uh, the Last of Us, which comes up a lot on the show... Uh, is currently being turned into an HBO TV series. There is an Uncharted movie in the works. Uh, Horizon Zero Dawn had a comic book series related to it. Uh, Ratchet and Clank had a whole movie project. That flopped catastrophically, so I'm not sure they're going to revisit the cross-media angle on that, but the game was very good. 
Uh, and the new game is apparently also very good. Uh, Spider-Man is technically half Sony, half Marvel. It's weird. It's comic book politics. I don't want to get into it. Uh, but it is a thing. <laughs> um, and a lot of the reaction to this episode, uh, to this episode, to this uh, article was quite negative uh, because a lot of mm-hmm. people were coming down on saying this is effectively sort of Sony doing the Microsoft approach uh, or at least Microsoft until right. this year, which is like Xbox is the Halo and Forza console and PS5 is going to be the, the last of us and uncharted console. And I'm sure you love that. Um, but yeah, not everyone. <laughs> yes. I, I think what, May, what rubbed me the wrong way in this article was that they explained that some smaller studios tried to do projects related to those uh, franchises and they were shut down because they were not the big studio working on these. Uh, and that to me was like, huh. Yeah, I'll, I'll sure kind of like get this. into that into a little bit right, with the that. specifics, but yeah. Uh, uh, that's the the part of us like mm, I'm not sure we're going in the right direction. That kind of resembles Microsoft plan, as you just said. Yeah. Um, so first party game studios were having their efforts uh, from their own personal, well, personal from their company's game development completely rerouted towards blockbuster franchises instead of allowing them to have their own properties that would eventually flourish maybe into some of these successful series. So the example that brings up in the, uh, in the article that you were, pro- uh, you were mentioning just now is the Sony Bend studio in Oregon. They're responsible for yep. days gone. Uh, days gone is this really shitty, uh, biker zombie game that was at like five E threes in a row and nobody was excited for it the first year. And they kept, trucking it out every year and it still looked bad every year but then they eventually released it and then nobody was surprised when the reviews were bad um but anyway they made that game uh and i mean it got average reviews but whatever uh they tried to pitch a sequel two days gone and it was rejected I mean, I would have done that too, citing its lengthy development because yes it was all those e3s and lackluster reviews because yes it was a bad game Sony decided to task them on working on a new Uncharted game under supervision from Naughty Dog. And the studio basically feared that if they kept working on this game, they would get merged into Naughty Dog and they would disappear and they would never get to work on their own games again. So they made a lot of pressure on Sony to be taken off the project. And they effectively like sort of compromised like, okay, you won't let us make Days Gone 2. Let us make a new IP instead and we'll do that instead. Uh, So that's sort of what ended up happening with that particular studio uh there were other studios like um so i'm gonna spoil the article uh the article also reveals that there's a last of us remake which is in the works currently under development by naughty dog um originally this was going to be made by another studio that was sort of made specifically to supplement these blockbuster franchises with uh side games like either remakes or like DLC type games, kind of like Lost Legacy and all that stuff. Um, and when The Last of Us 2 got delayed, uh, they sort of had to come in and be the B team to actually like ship the game on time. And then uh, it became very clear quickly that there was sort of this hostile takeover of The Last of Us remake project that Naughty Dog just completely took over and like this team sort of vanished. Uh <laughs> And so that's sort of like the the story going on there. 
Now, the, the reaction, gamer reaction to The Last of Us remake was pretty bad as well. Uh, people felt that it was a, wor- a waste of effort for them to remake a game that is already playable on every console generation since its, re- its release. So it came out on PS3, it was remastered on PS4, and it is technically still playable on PS5. And I would say that the game still looks pretty damn good on PS5, considering when it was originally released, if you play the PS4 version. So, like, a lot of people don't really see the point in remaking the game if it if you're remaking a game that was remastered so soon and a lot again like this is coming out like in the weeks after this uh announcement the ps3 games are closing down and people are saying if you're gonna remake ps3 games remake the games that we're not gonna be able to buy anymore because the ps3 (laughs) store is going away go remake tokyo jungle um which is also a pretty interesting uh angle to it Another thing that happened earlier this year, we kind of talked about it on the podcast, is that Japan Studio, which is the Tokyo-based Sony Computer Entertainment Studio, which made Ape Escape, which is a past Game of the Year winner uh, on our episode last year, I think. Um, I don't recall. I think it was last year. Yeah, uh, Japan Studio... It was was one of yours, so you should recall more than I do. Yeah, I mean, what is time? Um, (laughs) So... (laughs) So Japan Studio shut down. We talked about it. I think it was in uh, April of this year we talked about it uh, when they shut down. And this article sort of addresses that directly. It says, Sony informed developers that it no longer wants to produce smaller games that are only successful in Japan. Um, And the games that are cited directly in this thing are Gravity Rush, which was a Vita open world game where you... Uh, traversed the environment in very funky ways because you could basically like fly in the air and it was really fucking cool and it had a sequel on PS4. Uh, Everybody's Golf, also known as Hot, Shot, Hot Shots Golf in the West, that is apparently too internationally underperforming to actually continue to exist, uh, which fucking mm-hmm. sucks because I love those games. Yep. And the thing they don't really seem to understand is that Ape Escape, Gravity Rush, and Everybody's Golf is not really the same niche as The Last of Us and Uncharted. They are completely different game experiences. They are much more colorful experiences. They appeal to people who just want to press buttons and have a good time instead of being emotionally demolished for uh, however long they're playing. And you're just sort of squeezing out all of the game variety by getting rid of the studio that has pretty much only made good games uh, throughout their whole time. It's really fucking weird. It's especially bad since Sony has a reputation of sort of being the platform where experimentation flourished in past console generations. So this was especially true on PS1 and PS2. On PS1, CD distribution was much, much cheaper than making cartridges on N64. Uh, We're not going to talk about the Sega Saturn because that didn't really exist in the West. Uh, It was a much bigger deal in Japan. Mm -hmm. And it's much easier to take risks with experimental games when the barrier of entry is much, much lower. And this was equally true for Sony's own studios, which made a bunch of bangers uh, in the 90s, as it was for third parties. Um, there are a lot of really great games on my shelf right here, like Intelligent Cube is a really fucked up puzzle game uh, that was really, really cool on PS1, and they don't really make stuff like that. That was a Japan Studio game, among other things. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it just kind of looks bad that all of this, this, like, PlayStation used to be a platform for everybody, and it feels like they're squeezing out the people who are not interested in narrative-driven, story-based games. Um, 
And this is something that's kind of an in-joke with one of my friend groups, which is Sony is kind of only interested in putting out what we call dad games. Um, dad games? Dad games, right. So there are games that are about... Uh, that are either made by r- new fathers who want to talk about their experience with their new daughters, that focus on people with daddy issues who want to resolve them, or that are explicitly about being a dad, like God of War. Um, and like even recently, Horizon Zero Dawn was recently made available uh, on uh, PlayStation Plus. Or actually, no, it wasn't even PlayStation Plus. It was the the free game thing for COVID. And one of oh, my yeah, yeah. one of my friends was playing it for the first time, and she was like, "This is <laughs> yes. just this is just a game about your relationship with your dad. It's just another Sony exclusive." <laughs> oh my goodness! It's okay with the explanation. Uh, it's a hundred percent like on the on spot. Like, it's, yeah. yeah, okay, I like it. So this this is sort of the issue with this article is. If you already have the preconception that Sony is only putting out dad games, they're just like doubling down on dad games. Uh, And that really is not great if you're tired of dad games. (laughs) Now, uh, there have been some interesting data points that seem to indicate that maybe this is not as dire as it seems. So... The first data point is Returnal. Uh, Returnal is a very interesting counterexample to this trend. It's a PS5 game. It is exclusive to PS5 right now. It is a new Sony IP that was developed by Housemark, and it is very much a gamer's game. It is not narrative-driven at all. It is a bullet hell third-person shooter roguelike. Like those are the buzzwords gamers love. Um, <laughs> it has punishing, difficult gameplay. Love it. The storytelling is more environmental than narrative driven. Uh, there are basically like almost no cutscenes in the game. Everything you find out is environmental and it, the environments are gorgeous. Um, it is very gameplay first, narrative second, and it was well received by a ton of reviewers and players. And at least to me so far from all the entire uh, PlayStation 5 uh, lineup of games that have been released, it is the first PS5 game that I am truly excited to play someday. Uh, maybe one they don't cost a thousand dollars. So Returnal is interesting because since it's a new Sony IP and it hits all of these gamer plus points, <laughs> um, it's just like they knocked it out of the park with this one. And I hope that uh, we can see more games like Returnal, not necessarily a sequel to Returnal, although I'm assuming that that is probably going to be greenlit at some point. But if they can fuel this kind of... Uh, because this is not a combination of genres that we're used to seeing. Like, Bullet Hell third-person shooter, there have been a couple of those. Bullet Hell roguelike, there have been a couple of those. Bullet Hell third-person shooter roguelike, though, we've never seen that before. Um, So, it's an interesting Venn diagram of a game. Um, (laughs) But uh, if we can have more Venn diagrams as a game uh, like this for other genres and concepts... Uh, I would be really interested to see that uh, sort of spark life back into the uh, Sony uh, PlayStation Studios brand. The other thing I sort of want to talk about is the uh, interview we mentioned on the last episode when I was talking about cross-gen games uh, with Herman Hulst. So Herman Hulst is the guy who was put in charge of uh, PlayStation Studios, uh, I believe it was 18 months ago. And this interview, uh, like, yes, there was the cross-gen thing, but it also directly addresses many or most of the points from Jason Schreier's article without 
also saying anything of substance, really. Uh, it tries to reassure people that are worried about the direction PlayStation Studios is hit, headed in. And I believe it also mentions Returnal as sort of being like, look at Returnal. That wasn't such so fucked up after all. Um, <laughs> Uh, the article, uh, notably emphasizes that about half the article, uh, half the titles that they're working on right now are new IPs and about the other half are sequels to existing Sony franchises. There's still a lot Hmm. of new IPs being worked on and that is, I don't know if I'm going to like them, but it's better than nothing, I guess. It's not just going to be Uncharted and Last of Us (laughs) released over and over again on PS5. Right. Uh, then it sort of takes a turn and it's like, uh, people are worried that Japanese games aren't going to have a place on PS5. And they're like, well, we're still in Japan. We have Polyphony Digital and Asobi <laughs> Studio and nothing else because we closed all the other studios down. Uh, so yeah, they're trying to reassure us, but it's really hard to take them at their word with the information we have on hand now because I'm sure that a lot of the titles that are meant to reassure us have not been announced yet. And mm. this is where I get to last week. Sony was not at E3, and as a PlayStation fan, it really fucking sucked that they were not at E3 because there was not much at E3 this year uh, outside of Nintendo and Microsoft. So, Outside of Nintendo, you mean? No, Microsoft's event was actually pretty good. It's not okay. games that I would play, but okay. they had a lot of games. And this is an important like turnaround for Microsoft. I think this is the first time that like you can't really make the joke that Xbox doesn't have games anymore. They're just not games that I personally want to play, but they have a lot of games. Right. And then when you, as you said in follow up too, there are not games that you need an Xbox to play too. Yeah. They're basically all Xbox. Uh, they're basically all cross gen plus PC plus X. Right. So it's even more available for you if you want to play them. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting, but it's like as a PlayStation fan, I was I was really like, where are the PlayStation games at? <laughs> I miss Sony's presence at these conferences because everyone's announcing all their cool shit, and Sony just has nothing. Like you, you see a little tiny bit of it in the individual companies. Like Capcom had a press conference, uh, Bandai Namco kind of did, but it wasn't really. Uh, Square Enix had their shit show where they had half of the event that was Guardians of the Galaxy and the other half was like three second trailers for Final Fantasy. Uh, so yeah, like there were things announced for PlayStation systems, but a lot of the excitement right now around PS5 and those systems are in the games that the PlayStation Studios are going to put out for it or that, uh, or is just stuff that's not fully baked right now. Like Final Fantasy VII Remake Part Two. like I'm pretty sure that's going to be a PS5 exclusive at least at launch, but it's not ready yet. Uh, same deal for Final Fantasy 16, right? Um, so everything is just like cooking right now and they have nothing to show and it kind of sucks. But that is it for my uh, Sony missteps uh, episode. Do you have any closing comments? Uh, I do have a small tangent and it's about the, the article itself. Sure. Because again, uh, we've seen... You've seen throughout the years like multiple leaks like these, not only in in, in video game studios and all that fun stuff, but like some bad, some not some pissed employees is not happy about the corporate decision. Yeah. Then they leak it to the press to make some retribution or even like to piss off the corporate uh, folks that make that decision. But again, there's always some kind of source of truth, and it kind of reminded me too at the end where 
maybe let's say five or six years ago oh, not even then but like we rem- we remember the time where the ps4 and even the vita were pretty strong on eating indie games and yep. that's what some people attributes to the success of the ps4 in the last gen but even in the last few years of the ps4 we kind of seen sony divert away from this and not fully divert away from this but change the strategy and I wouldn't be surprised if that's what we're seeing today. It's just that somebody is pissed that the strategy is changing again. Um, and But again, it doesn't mean it's like drastically changing. Uh, so again, that's why I leave them a bit of benefit because we could say like, okay, if they really fucked up and they all go like Uncharted and The Last of Us and G- Gran Turismo and that's it. And they just like uh, spewed out sequels every two months, 24 months, things like that, then we can say, okay, you know what, after two, three years since this article, the bulk of it was really true. But I think people are freaking out a bit. And to keep their edge, I think they still need to build new IP because from what I've seen is, and we we did discuss that in previous episodes too, that the home consoles are still pretty strong here in North America mm-hmm. and a little bit in Europe. But not in Japan. Like we always made fun of the Microsoft consoles in Japan when you were giving us the sell number, the selling numbers, the weekly sell numbers. So I can understand, and I'm walking on eggs right now. I can understand why Sony's like, yeah, the funky Japanese game that maybe took a year to get popular, or to like two or three years to get popular in the rest of the world. We might don't want to spend the money now and wait for three years to get back our money. We, if we spend money and we release the game, we want our ROI right away, to use those business terms. I, I think one interesting aspect that um, I didn't bring up earlier with regards to stuff like Gravity Rush and uh, Everybody's Golf and those kinds of games is, like, yes, they are internationally underperforming. Like, that is undeniable. And you're perfectly right. that Like, I don't think necessarily the sales figures of Sony consoles in Japan alone are enough to justify the existence of these games. However, I would also say that Sony in the West does not promote Japanese Sony games. It only promotes, like, Naughty Dog prestige shit. Right. <laughs> and there you're not going to see ads on the side of buses for everybody's golf but you do see that in japan and that is where the divide sort of happens to me is that like these games were not bad gravity rush in particular is like an example of a game that could sell vitas if people knew it existed but Sony of America had already decided that they were not going to continue supporting the Vita at that point when the game came out. Right. So they weren't putting any promotion to it. And that's sort of why Gravity Rush 2, even though it came out on PS4, nobody knew what the fuck Gravity Rush was. So it didn't sell. And then they just canned the entire studio, which is like, okay, but who's really to blame there? The games were both really, well, they weren't perfect on a technical level, but they were still fun games. And... Like, where does the blame go? Is it the studio who's to blame for the bad marketing overseas? I don't know enough about how the organization is built to tell you if that's their fault. But I don't, it doesn't seem to me like it's their fault. And again, I'm not pulling fully blame. And I I get your point of self-fulfilling prophecy, because that's more or less what he's saying. Is like, if if the North American branch of PlayStation is not really believing uh, or like empowering those 
Japanese studios here uh, to make sure that they are successful and then they can say like, hey, at least we tried to make it a successful game or a successful PR launch. Uh, that's one thing. But we've been discussing in the last more than six years of this episode, of this podcast, excuse me, uh, yeah, six years, episode is long, um, that the trend on home consoles is going down and down and down week after year in Japan, less so in North America. So I can also see like, you know what, like we could spend the money to invest, but we know our friends in North America, they never really want to, to bet on those games they'll bet on them when they're forced to because the market is saying like, hey, what the fuck, where is this game? Or like they realize, oops, it's like 200% every week of selling this game because the internet made it popular, not our PR marketing campaigns did that. Uh, And then, so again, I'm not saying it fully justifies this, but the way we were talking about the successes of all video games consoles in the past in this podcast and then when I knew we were talking about that for this week, I did see some correlation, even if they're maybe yeah. may weak. I, I don't think they're as weak as some might think. No, I think you're perfectly right. Um, the, the other thing, I, I want to go back to the the interview that I mentioned with uh, Herman's Holst. This is paraphrasing, but this is more or less how you can read uh, one of the things he says. Is He more or less wants PlayStation to be a brand that you can sort of consider the HBO of gaming. Which, like, considering that and the series that I mentioned earlier when I was talking about, like, the blockbuster franchises that they were wanting to focus on, like, yeah, it pretty much tracks. But if you look at another service right now that is trying to sort of be the HBO of digital video, which is Apple TV+, Apple TV Plus has a very diverse portfolio of different things. They do not just have dramas. If Mm -hmm. everything on Apple TV Plus was a drama, people would get burnt out of it and they would go away. Whereas I can handle maybe one drama a year, which is why I'm excited for the morning show of season two, which is coming out in September. And there's a lot of really cool comedy stuff on Apple TV Plus as well. Like I love Mythic Quest and I think Ted Lasso was a great show and I recommend both of those shows greatly. And it makes the service more appealing because it has a variety of stuff. And the main concern with with the whole dad game thing is <laughs> if you just make dad games, where do you like decompress after playing that? Like even for players who enjoy those games, like they don't just want to play that. Like I'm pretty sure you don't just want to play that. I guess you'd probably go to the Switch, right? <laughs> to decompress. Uh-huh. Is that the thing? <laughs> I would again we discussed that during the Zelda episode that these days I don't play too much video games overall. Yeah. Uh but I think after I think after you're right, after you are exaggerating a bit, but it is true that these days if I follow even video game news that is focused to North American market, it's hard to figure out different things. That fits some of the dad games, as you call them. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure. Uh, small tangent. I'm sure you have to make one of our quotes about that games. The title you have to. There were a lot of good quotes that I improvised <laughs> that were not in my notes <laughs> for this episode. So for once again, for once. Wow. Uh, but yeah, that that's pretty much all I have for this episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. Yeah, and I hope uh, one thing uh, I do agree with you that I kind of wish I. It's been a couple of years since Sony attended E3, right? 
Yeah. Um, obviously last year, well, last year was strange because they did the PS5 reveal stream around the time that E3 normally happens, which is why I sort of forgot that Sony was not at E3. Uh, because last year it sort of just lined up with the dates because they were doing new hardware that year. Um, yeah. But I think they haven't been there for three years. But again, my memory is vague. I remember the PS5 launch or launch stream, as you said. But I think in the like in 2019 and 2018, they did something even a bit before to steal the thunder or just far enough after so that they can regain the thunder and people are like oh my god Zelda Nintendo Direct blah 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 and they're like who cares here's the PS the Sony announcement uh, like a week or two from now so I do expect not expect but I do hope that that will happen but again I think the last big E3 they did was when they had the and this was crazy they had three separate stages they had the last of us two uh what is it is it like um is it like a ballroom or something where they were dancing or it was a concert or something and basically the the gimmick was that the stage room you were in was the same room that was in the cutscene for the launch the announcement trailer for the last of us 2 which small tangent it's not even a fucking cutscene of the video game it just it was was just a trailer it was uh, i wouldn't even call it a teaser at this point it was just built built to tease the game literally Um, but at the the time we didn't know that they did the same thing for, oh, which racist game was it? Um, I think it was Ghost of Tsushima. Uh, not that Ghost of Tsushima is racist, but it's just cultural (laughs) appropriateism. Um, okay. I wasn't sure if you said racing or racist. No, no, no. Uh, it's a samurai game made by white people. Um, Ah, okay, okay. (laughs) So, yeah, there was that. And then they just went to a normal stage and pretended that nothing happened for the past two trailers, which was really strange. And I think that was their last E3 event. Hmm. Then they just started, like, copying Nintendo and saying, we're just going to do a stream and we're going to air trailers one after the other and not have a stage. And that'll be fine. And it mostly was. It's just that right now it feels really empty without Sony. No, yeah, yeah. And I... That's that's exactly my point to, to conclude is really I do hope that in the next month or so we see something and it's not we see something in the fall. Oh, I don't know. Uh, Sony likes Tokyo Game Show. <laughs> that's in September. But yeah. Um, uh, uh, yeah. Okay. So I guess you're kidding my hopes already. The one thing I, I want to briefly mention now that you've reminded me of it is the future of E3 is very unsure right now. Um, last year there technically was no E3. Uh, there were things scheduled around E3, mostly, uh, hardware reveal streams from Microsoft and, uh, Sony because of their new consoles. And, uh, Jeff Keighley, which runs the game awards that I'm not a huge fan of, uh, started something called Summer Game Fest, which is basically like, I think three months of weekly streams that he did that were sort of the replacement for E3. It was just rolled out over a longer period of time. That's where uh, Tony Hawk uh, Pro Skater 1 and 2 was announced and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. So th- there were there were sort of alternative events, kind of like you can think of AltConf at uh, WWEC and all of that stuff. This year, right. actual E3 happened. It was fucking crazy. Uh, basically, the way it worked is that there were like 
five slots for press conferences that were officially e- at E3 and companies had to pay to be part of that, which I, I don't really understand why you would pay for that. If you are a big company and have visibility, you could just do it on your own do Twitch. Your, and yeah. Do your own thing and that's it. And a bunch of suckers paid for them and they had the shittiest press conferences in the world. So, I, I mean, that that was fun. Um, huh. But... Uh, that's happening the summer game fest is also happening and there are like two or three other side events from last year that also sort of exist throughout the summer so there is a possibility that sony is going to bandwagon on one of them throughout the summer i am not really sure about it um and e3 was just really fucking weird this year and i i can't believe this will continue for very long either it goes back to being in person or they stop it entirely because it's kind of a joke right now (laughs) Okay, yeah, yeah. My last question about you was it was virtual this year again. Yeah. Okay. Oof. At least. Good. So I think that more or less wraps up my... Yeah. What I think about the last part. Cool. Good. So you can find the show notes for this episode at limitlesspossibility.net slash 163. Uh, 163. You can also find our back catalog at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Lukonouche. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And you can find Yannick at... Sakarina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And we'll see you in two weeks talking about WDC. See you in two weeks.